hey, it's Guy here. Have you ever been told not to procrastinate, that it's bad for your productivity? Well, it turns out that that is not entirely true. So what if I told you that slowing down or pushing something off or even doing nothing for a period of time could actually be a good thing? Well, on this episode, we're going to explore why taking it slow is hard but crucial. It's called slowing down, and it originally aired in August of 2016. This is the TED Radio Hour. Each week, groundbreaking TED Talks. TED Talks. Um, TED. TED. Technology. Entertainment. Design. Design. Is that really what it stands for? <laughs> I've never known that. Delivered at TED conferences around the world. It's the gift of the human imagination. We've had to believe in impossible things. The true nature of reality beckons from just beyond. Those talks, those ideas, adapted for radio. From NPR. I'm Guy Raz. So if you've been watching TV in Norway on a Friday night a couple of years ago, and you tuned into the country's public broadcasting channel, you'd have seen a train. Actually, not a train, but the view from the train's windshield. And what you see gliding down some tracks in the Norwegian countryside are these snow-covered hills flowing by a low yellow sun flickering in and out of the trees, and the track stretching on and on, right in front of you. We mounted one camera in the front, constantly filming what you will see as an engine driver. Tomas Hellem produced this video. And we had two cameras pointing uh, one to left, one to the right, to see the view. Tomas and his team edited those three camera views into a single widescreen shot that's weirdly transfixing to watch and kind of peaceful. Like you were sitting in a glass bubble in front of the train. If you'd wanted to, you could have watched this video shot from the front of this train traveling from the city of Bergen, Norway, to the capital Oslo, for seven hours. Seven hours and 14 minutes. Wow. Everything is there. The boring wow. part is there and the, and the good part is there. <laughs> <laughs> who watched this? Like, who sat in front of the television and watched this? This was in uh, 1.2 million Norwegians what? watched part of this program. <laughs> what? Uh, yes. <laughs> so this experiment by Norwegian public broadcaster NRK was the start of what's come to be known as slow TV. And it's become kind of a thing, which Tomas explained on the TED stage. How did we get there? We have to go back to 2009, where one of my colleagues got a great idea. Where do you get the ideas? In the lunchroom. So he said, why don't we make a radio program marking the day of the German invasion of Norway in 1940? We tell the story at the exact time during the night. Wow. Brilliant idea, except this was just a couple of weeks before the invasion day. So we sat in our lunchroom and discussed what other stories can you tell as they evolve? What other things takes real long time? So one of us came up with the train. The Bergen Railway had its 100 years anniversary that year. Goes from Western Norway to Eastern Norway, and it used exactly the same time as it did 40 years ago. Over seven hours. And now we thought, yes, we have a brilliant program for the 2,000 train spotters in Norway. 1.2 million Norwegians watched part of this program. Isn't that like a quarter of the population of Norway? Yeah, it's a fifth or a quarter of the <laughs> oh population. So it's, because it's so, it's so slow, I think it's like when you, if you really stretch the time a bit and go deep into something, it gets more and more interesting the deeper you get into it. And the network Tomas works for, NRK, has gone on to produce more slow TV, like 
for National Firewood Night. Eight hours of a burning fireplace. A show all about fishing. Uh, salmon fishing. A big deal in Norway. That was 18 hours. Just 18 hours of just, just fishing. people fishing. Yeah, it took three hours before we got the first fish. Three hours before the first <laughs> fish was caught. They've done knitting. Almost nine hours. For National Knitting Night. Yes. <laughs> a cover-to-cover performance of a book of Norwegian hymns. For 60 hours. And most ambitiously, a boat cruise along a famous Norwegian shipping route. For five and a half days. So no interruptions, no like late breaking news, nothing. No. They five and a half days. Put the news away, they put everything else else away and, and gave us the channel for, uh, for five and a half. Watching that boat leave the harbor and then sail for hours and hours and hours. It's hard to remember that even though this is called slow TV, you're not watching something slow. You're watching something real, something happening exactly as it did. And we are living in times when coherent stories and context is somehow exotic. People are longing for some kind of connection or an unbroken story. So today on the show, slowing down. A social scientist who says doing it can give you more original ideas. A story about the lost art of letter writing and even a master procrastinator, all with ideas about why taking it slow is hard but important for all of us. People ask me about slow TV. They ask, could this be done elsewhere in the world or are Norwegians particularly crazy? <laughs> uh, and I don't think we are. I, I think we have, with the slow TV, we have done something that reacts to uh, a need yeah. among people. Trying to, uh, to tell a story in full length, it can be a, a window to the world. And if you, if you go on a train journey, if you go on a boat journey, you experience in the same slow way. And that's made me appreciate uh, slowness because it gives the viewer a possibility to take back some of the control. You can watch all of Tomas Hellem's TED Talk at TED.com. And in answer to whether slow TV is just for Norwegians, not anymore. Norwegian slow TV is now available on Netflix. Why not take some time to check it out? On the show today, we're talking about slowing down. And this... I can go as slowly as you want. ...is Adam Grant. A Wharton professor of management and psychology and author of Give and Take and Originals. But you're not like a slow guy at all. Like You're like the polar opposite of that. I am. I can't stand inefficiency, and uh, I tend to do things as quickly as possible without compromising quality standards. In fact, Adam hates inefficiency so much that he's a self-described precrastinator, as in the opposite of procrastinator. Guilty as charged. And, and what, is, what is that, by the way? You know that panic you feel like a couple hours before a big deadline, you're behind? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I feel that a few months before that big deadline. All right, so, so what happens when you can't get something done like way in advance? Like what happens to you? I, I feel like I'm going to combust. Really? <laughs> it's agonizing, yeah. Okay, I read that you finished your college thesis four months before the deadline. Yes, I did. Uh, your PhD, you finished it in, in less than three years? Apparently. Tenured professor in your 20s? Guilty. These are not the signs of a person who belongs in a show called Slowing Down. <laughs> yeah, I'm definitely the fish out of water here. Except that, interestingly, Adam Grant has worked really hard to prove that slowing down, even though it's harder for some of us than others, can be really good, especially when it comes to creativity. It was heretical to me at first, and yet, you know, I was, I was simultaneously excited about the possibility of being wrong and also deeply disturbed by the implications of it. On the TED stage, Adam told a story that sparked this idea, and it all started a few years ago when he was teaching a business class. A student came to me and asked me to invest in his company. He said, I'm working with three friends, 
and we're going to try to disrupt an industry by selling stuff online. And I said, okay, you guys spent the whole summer on this, right? No, we all took internships, just in case it doesn't work out. All right, but you're going to go in full-time once you graduate. Not exactly. We've all lined up backup jobs. Six months go by. It's the day before the company launches, and there is still not a functioning website. So I obviously declined to invest. Yeah, like all these things were signs that these guys weren't taking it very seriously. Yeah, it was like a little hobby, right? It was like, hey, we have this idea. You know, let's, let's goof around and see what happens. And, and you felt like they were going pretty slowly, like they weren't moving fast on it? I thought they were way too slow. I mean, they, they came to me with the idea in August. It's February. The company is supposed to launch the next day. They still do not have a functioning website. And, you know, like, I, I'm looking at them thinking, the company is a website. There's nothing else. It's just a website. And you haven't built that. What have you been doing for the last six months? And it turns out they spent those six months just arguing about what they should name the company. And I thought, you know, kind of unproductively, considering over 2,000 different names, I'm like, who cares what you name the company? You need a website or else you don't have a company. And they ended up naming the company Warby Parker. <laughs> They sell glasses online. They were recently recognized as the world's most innovative company and valued at over a billion dollars. And now, my wife handles our investments. <laughs> Why was I so wrong? To find out, I've been studying people that I come to call originals. Originals are nonconformists, people who not only have new ideas, but take action to champion them. Originals drive creativity and change in the world. They're the people you want to bet on, and they look nothing like I expected. A few years ago, I had a student named Jihei who came to me and said, I have my most creative ideas when I'm procrastinating. And I was like, that's cute. Where are the four papers you owe me? <laughs> no, she was one of our most creative students, and as an organizational psychologist, this is the kind of idea that I test. So I challenged her to get some data. She goes into a bunch of companies. She has people to fill out surveys about how often they procrastinate. Then she gets their bosses to rate how creative and innovative they are. And sure enough, the procrastinators like me who rush in and do everything early are rated as less creative. So I want to know what happens to the chronic procrastinators. She's like, I don't know. They didn't fill out my survey. <laughs> And there was this almost beautiful inverted U where, you know, people who waited till the last minute, like the chronic procrastinators, you know, they, they just had to rush ahead with their simplest idea because they didn't have enough time to work out the creative ones. Hmm. Um, but the procrastinators like me were also less creative because, you know, we, we tended to rush ahead with our first ideas, which are usually the most conventional. And we also made the mistake of, you know, thinking in very structured, linear ways, whereas, you know, people who started early and then put it away for a while and then came back to it, they were much more likely to do divergent thinking and incubation, and, and that actually boosted their, their creativity. And we ran some experiments to show that, in fact, like forcing people to procrastinate or enticing them to procrastinate could boost their creativity as long as they didn't wait too long. Adam Grant. He'll be back in just a minute with the story of another experiment about the value of procrastination, where he was the test subject. That and more ideas about slowing down. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Hey, everyone, just a quick thanks to two of our sponsors who help make this podcast possible. First, to Kumon, who ensures kids get the best possible foundation in math and reading, along with essential skills for success. In Kumon, kids as young as three advance through concepts incrementally, working daily and getting preschoolers kindergarten ready and challenging older kids. Parents will see their kids develop valuable traits like self-confidence and perseverance. Kumon, where smart kids get smarter. Visit kumon.com. 
Thanks also to Tax Act. Tax season is here, and if you've got questions, like if you're getting the biggest refund, Tax Act has you covered. With their deduction maximizer designed with freelancers and the self-employed in mind, and the 100K accuracy guarantee, you can feel confident that you're maximizing your deductions and your refund. So to get the most out of tax season, visit taxact.com slash radio hour to get 25% off federal and state filing. Before you start your day, you might like to know what's happening in the news, and that is what Up First is for. It's the morning news podcast from NPR, the news you need to take on the day in just 10 minutes. Listen to Up First on the NPR One app or wherever you get your podcasts. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And on the show today, ideas about slowing down. And just a minute ago, we were hearing from business school professor Adam Grant describe how a few years ago, some students in a class of his really opened his eyes to the value of procrastinating and taking the time to work through a new idea. So he began studying people who came up with great new ideas, and he called them originals. Adam picks up the story from the TED stage. I was starting to write a book about originals, and I thought, this is the perfect time to teach myself to procrastinate while writing a chapter on procrastination. So I meta-procrastinated. And like any self-respecting procrastinator, I woke up early the next morning and I made a to-do list with steps on how to procrastinate. <laughs> and then I worked diligently toward my goal of not making progress toward my goal. I started writing the procrastination chapter, and one day, I was halfway through, I literally put it away in mid-sentence for months. It was agony. But when I came back to it, I had all sorts of new ideas. As Aaron Sorkin put it, you call it procrastinating, I call it thinking. And along the way, I discovered that a lot of great originals in history were procrastinators. Take Leonardo da Vinci. He toiled on and off for 16 years on the Mona Lisa. He felt like a failure. He wrote as much in his journal. But some of the diversions he took in optics transformed the way that he modeled light and made him into a much better painter. What about Martin Luther King Jr.? The night before the biggest speech of his life, the March on Washington, he was up past 3 a.m. rewriting it. He's sitting in the audience waiting for his turn to go on stage, and he is still scribbling notes and crossing out lines. When he gets on stage, 11 minutes in, he leaves his prepared remarks to utter four words that change the course of history. I have a dream. That was not in the script. By delaying the task of finalizing the speech until the very last minute, he left himself open to the widest range of possible ideas. And because the text wasn't set in stone, he had freedom to improvise. Wow, I had no idea he was writing that speech to, to the last minute. So what happens in, in the period between when we put something away? Let's say because we succumb to our, the laziest parts of ourselves. What happens during that time? How does that actually get gears in our brain working? Well, very rarely are people lazy about everything all the time. So what we look at as laziness is actually you know, being discouraged by something being really difficult. Um, the psychologist Ian McGregor, who has incredibly fascinating research on what he calls compensatory conviction, uh, which is when you're facing serious uncertainty, what you do is you, like, you start fleeing in a different direction. And you develop all this passion for something else that helps you escape from the thing that you're trying to get out of your field of vision. If you take that idea seriously, what often happens when we're putting things off or you're procrastinating, um, you are pursuing other things that could potentially like, be combined with the things that you're putting off. You, know, you, you end up testing out you know, different kinds of ideas when you're trying to solve a different problem. And then sometimes they end up feeding right back into the thing you were avoiding in the first place. Yeah, I mean, if you are constantly moving forward every single day without the opportunity to stop and, and just reflect or stop and do something completely different, you're going to be limited, right? You're going to be limited in what you're able to say or think. 
you know the the experience I had while while writing was was so revealing on this. Um, you know, I, I put off the chapter. I couldn't get it worked out. I came back to it, and all of a sudden, I remembered this research on the Zagarnik effect. Uh, you know, almost a century ago, this German psychologist uh, wrote about how we have a better memory for incomplete than complete tasks. So you finish something, you check it off your to-do list, and it, like it's erased. Whereas incomplete tasks, you know, they have to stay active so that, you know, we, we don't have to redo them. We remember how to pick up where we left off. It reduces getting into time. And all of a sudden, I was like, wait, so this is what's going on. When you put something off instead of finishing it, it stays partially active in the back of your mind. And that allows you, you know, to, to keep going back to the well. And, like the, the, you know, ironically, right, I left the task incomplete, and then I remembered the Zagarnik effect about the benefits of leaving the task incomplete. <laughs> I was like, okay, this is, this is really annoying. Uh, but I think that, that that is one of the things that really happens when you slow down is uh, you, you keep it active in your working memory, and it can be really good for the task that you haven't quite solved yet. Adam says this is why truly original ideas are quick to start, but slow to finish. They take time. And the people behind those ideas often have a lot of doubts and often a backup plan in case the original idea doesn't work out. And this is what I missed with Warby Parker. They had backup plans lined up, and that made me doubt that they had the courage to be original. Now, on the surface, a lot of original people look confident, but behind the scenes, they feel the same fear and doubt that the rest of us do. They just manage it differently. Now, in my research, I discovered there are two different kinds of doubt. There's self-doubt and idea doubt. Self-doubt is paralyzing. It leads you to freeze. But idea doubt is energizing. It motivates you to test, to experiment, to refine, just like MLK did. Instead of saying, I'm crap, you say, the first few drafts are always crap, and I'm just not there yet. So how do you get there? Well, it's about being the kind of person who takes the initiative to doubt the default and look for a better option. And if you do that well, you will open yourself up to the opposite of deja vu. There's a name for it. It's called vujade. <laughs> vujade is when you look at something you've seen many times before and all of a sudden see it with fresh eyes. It's a screenwriter who looks at a movie script they can't get the green light for more than half a century. In every past version, the main character has been an evil queen. But Jennifer Lee starts to question whether that makes sense. She rewrites the first act, reinvents the villain as a tortured hero, and Frozen becomes the most successful animated movie ever. So there's a simple message from this story. When you feel doubt, don't let it go. <laughs> what about fear? Originals feel fear, too. They're afraid of failing. But what sets them apart from the rest of us is that they're even more afraid of failing to try. They know you can fail by starting a business that goes bankrupt or by failing to start a business at all. They know that in the long run, our biggest regrets are not our actions, but our inactions. The things we wish we could redo, if you look at the science, are the chances not taken. When do you know, when do you know that like the procrastination is productive, and when, and when do you know that it's just destructive? Tomorrow, I hope. <laughs> <laughs> I think that probably the easiest way to think about it is to say procrastination can become creative when you know you've actively grappled with a problem, and that's why I like the idea of being quick to start and slow to finish, being quick at the beginning. Um, and trying to you know, accelerate a little bit of progress as you're generating lots and lots of ideas and trying to do that at a rapid pace, um, that's good. And then at that point, you want to slow down. You want to give yourself access to lots of different you know, new insights and then move back into productivity mode. And, and getting skilled at toggling between those two modes is probably what ultimately gets the best balance of creativity and productivity. Yeah, I mean, it makes a lot of sense, but the world we live in today requires instant feedback because everyone seems to have have that information available at their fingertips you know that that we actually live in a much much faster world than ever before and that trajectory is just moving in one direction like it'll be faster in 20 years and faster in 40 years yeah i think that's a serious risk that we're facing is that 
the faster we move, you know, the less carefully we tend to reflect on things. I think about it in some ways as, you know, the difference between being smart and being wise, right? Being smart is all about, you know, the speed at which you can process complex information. And you actually may get it right a lot of the time. But if you never take a step back and pause and ask, what if, what if this isn't true? What if all of my assumptions are going to be wrong? Then, you know, you're going to end up winning a bunch of battles and losing a lot of wars. Adam Grant, he teaches at the Wharton School of Business. He wrote a book about this idea. It's called Originals. You can see his entire talk at TED.com. So for all of Adam Grant's research about procrastination and slowing down, there's a right way to do it and a wrong way. Can you introduce yourself, please, Tim? Uh, Yeah, I'm Tim Urban. Tim's a blogger. His blog is called Wait But Why. And Tim blogs on all kinds of topics. The cool thing about that is I can kind of switch it up based on whatever I'm interested in. And like any other job, being a blogger comes with job responsibilities. In fact, Tim has a list posted on his website. So my responsibilities are uh, passionately underestimating how long each post will take to do, pacing around in his underwear, hating himself. That's one of my major responsibilities. Thinking if only I were doing that other topic, it would be so much easier. And, and you consider yourself to be a procrastinator, right? Yes. A chronic, troubled procrastinator, yes. It's my core struggle. The core struggle of your life? Yes. So naturally, Tim started to blog about procrastination. You know, I've now done three posts on procrastination, um, and I've gotten more emails regarding those three posts than the other 80 posts I've written combined. Now, one thing about these posts that seem to resonate with people is this visual Tim came up with to describe what goes on in his brain when he's procrastinating. He imagines these two cartoon characters fighting over control of his mental steering wheel. You know, you picture inside your brain, there's a wheel... Like, uh, I always picture one of those um, wheels on the boats, you know, the big thing with a bunch of the... the steamboat uh, willy wheel, right? Yeah, 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 those those big octopus wheels. Yeah. Here's Tim on the TED stage. I wanted to explain to the non-procrastinators of the world what goes on in the heads of procrastinators and why we are the way we are. Now, I had a hypothesis that the, the brains of procrastinators were actually different than the brains of other people. Both brains have a rational decision-maker in them, but the procrastinator's brain also has an instant gratification monkey. (laughs) Now, what does this mean for the procrastinator? Well, the instant gratification monkey does not seem like a guy you want behind the wheel. He lives entirely in the present moment, he has no memory of the past, no knowledge of the future, and he only cares about two things, easy and fun. (laughs) Now, we have another guy in our brain, the rational decision-maker who gives us the ability to do things no other animal can do. We can visualize the future, we can see the big picture, we can make long-term plans, and he wants to take all of that into account, and he wants to just have us do whatever makes sense to be doing right now. Now, sometimes it makes sense to be doing things that are easy and fun, like when you're having dinner or going to bed or enjoying well-earned leisure time. Sometimes they agree. But other times, it makes much more sense to be doing things that are harder and less pleasant for the sake of the big picture, and that's when we have a conflict. (laughs) So the rational decision-maker will make the rational decision to do something productive, but the monkey doesn't like that plan. So he actually takes the wheel, and he says, actually, let's read the entire Wikipedia page of the Nancy Kerrigan-Tanya Harding scandal, because I just remembered that that happened. (laughs) Then... Then we're going to go over to the fridge, we're going to see if there's anything new in there since 10 minutes ago. So I bet that's, a, I bet that's an interesting Wikipedia page about uh, Tanya Harding and Nancy Kerrigan. Oh my God, it's so interesting. Oh, it's amazing. And lots of things to like hyperlink. Click oh, it's on. riveting. Yeah. Oh God. So, so I read the whole thing. Then I went and read you know, four other articles. Then I got into a whole Tanya Harding spiral. I read about her husband, who's an amazing character, by the way. Oh man. I read about her husband, her husband's associate. This is the nightmare. So I'm doing this, and the whole time the rational decision maker's screaming at the top of the like, lungs. Stop it. He's saying, What the f are you doing? You have so much to do right now. This is, makes no sense. And so so and so then me, I'm not actually having fun. I'm really, really upset while doing this. It's insane behavior. 
And it's this self-defeating kind of um, habitual behavior. It's a, it's a habit to let the monkey kind of take over. Then how do you, like, ever get anything done as, as a procrastinator? There's another character called the Panic Monster. <laughs> and the Panic Monster, you know, is dormant almost all the time, but emerges in a frenzy when there's some external deadline. Because the only thing that scares the monkey, the only thing that can overpower the monkey is the panic monster. And this entire situation with the three characters, this is the procrastinator's system. It's not pretty, but in the end, it works. Well, it turns out that there's two kinds of procrastination. When there's deadlines, the effects of procrastination are contained to the short term because the panic monster gets involved. But there's a second kind of procrastination that happens in situations when there is no deadline. So if you want to have a career where you want to be a self-starter, something in the arts, something entrepreneurial, there's no deadlines on those things at first. There's also all kinds of important things outside of your career that don't involve any deadlines, like seeing your family or exercising and taking care of your health. Now, if procrastinator's only mechanism of doing these hard things is the panic monster. That's a problem, because in all of these non-deadline situations, the panic monster doesn't show up. He has nothing to wake up for. So the effects of procrastination, they're not contained. They just extend outward forever. The monkey's sneakiest trick is when the deadlines aren't there. So Adam Grant was saying that, uh, that this can actually like, be, be a good thing, right? And so I, I wonder whether slowing things down, like you know, procrastinating, has, has actually helped you out. In a way, yeah. In a way, it is like the, the good part of procrastination for me in my particular line of work is the impulse to say, whoa, 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 let's take a just deep breath here and let's take our time. I definitely go slowly, as any reader of Wait But Why will tell you. Um, I do not come out with posts very quickly. Sometimes if I take 10 weeks to come out with a blog post and it's 30,000 words, that's something, but it's not really what a blogger is supposed to do. And so for me, going slow is, um, is an important part of what I do. Yeah. I mean, think about your, like your blog has been pretty successful and the sort of the conventional wisdom about the internet is, you know, fast, brief, like clickbait stuff. And uh, you get lots of readers and you post, uh, you know, whenever you can. Oh, yeah, absolutely. For me, I mean, I, it wasn't a good business plan to try to out BuzzFeed, BuzzFeed. You know, they write 1,000 articles a day. I'm going to write 2,000 articles a day. That's obviously, I have no chance of doing that. And, and I definitely believe that the ability of Wait But Why to gain a readership is directly tied to, um, you know, me spending 60 or 80 hours on every single post. And they don't come out very often, but when they do, the quality is apparent. It's apparent that someone spent a long time on that. I mean, that's the thing. Like, I, I feel like, you know, the idea of slowing down, even when, when it takes the form of procrastination, like, has huge benefits. Absolutely. I, I think that for someone who wants to kind of really invent something that seems new or that seems, you know, that really seems fresh, that takes emotional and mental toil over long periods of time. It doesn't just happen. But procrastination is different than slowing down. Procrastination often forces you to slow down, which is why it can be kind of an indirect asset. So for me, um, all I cared about when I came out of college was doing creative, a creative pursuit of some kind, whether it was writing music or, or, or writing. And I um, didn't start doing, you know, one of those creative passions full time till I was 31. That procrastination set me back nine years there. So I think the answer isn't to be a procrastinator. That's someone who's not in control of their own life. The answer is to be in control and to know that it's smart to slow down and to do that in a controlled, intentional way. Tim Urban, his blog is called Wait But Why. You can see his entire talk at TED.com. More ideas about slowing down in just a minute. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Hey, everyone, just a quick thanks to two of our sponsors who help make this podcast possible. First, to Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Rocket Mortgage gives you the confidence when it comes to buying a home or refinancing your existing home loan. Rocket Mortgage is simple, allowing you to fully understand all the details and be confident you're getting the right mortgage. To get started, go to rocketmortgage.com ideas. Jessica? Equal housing lender. Licensed in all 50 states. 
nmlsconsumeraccess.org number 3030. Thanks also to HBO's High Maintenance. Inspired by the beloved web series, the critically acclaimed show surrounds the life of the guy, the nameless bike-riding weed dealer who helps his clients deal with whatever life delivers. Each episode features stories that bring vibrant characters, all connected by their salesmen, to life as the show captures the experience of truly trying to cope. You can stream the first season now and new episodes from season two every Friday. I'm Ophira Eisenberg. Join me on NPR's Ask Me Another as we challenge contestants and celebrities to nerdy word games, music parodies, and ponderful trivia. Find us every week on the NPR One app and wherever you listen to podcasts. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And on the show today, ideas about slowing down. How to do it in a world that seems to be constantly speeding up. And that was a question Andy Puttycomb had in his 20s when he quit school and decided to become a Buddhist monk. And when he spoke on the TED stage, Andy explained what happens when you don't give your mind a few moments every day to take it just a little slower. The result, of course, is that we get stressed. You know, the mind whizzes away like a washing machine going round and round, lots of difficult, confusing emotions. And we miss out on the things that are most important to us. And the crazy thing is that everybody just assumes, well, that's the way life is, so we just kind of got to get on with it. But that's really not how it has to be. So I was about 11 when I went along to my first meditation class. As I was there, you know, I guess like a lot of people, I assumed that it was just an aspirin for the mind. You get stressed, you do some meditation. I hadn't really thought that it could be sort of preventative in nature. Until I was about sort of 20, when a number of things happened in my life in quite quick succession, really serious things, which just flipped my life upside down. And all of a sudden, I was inundated with thoughts, inundated with difficult emotions that I didn't know how to cope with. Every time I sort of pushed one down, another one would just sort of pop back up again. It was a really very stressful time. I guess we all deal with stress in different ways. My own way of dealing with it was to become a monk. So I quit my degree, I headed off to the Himalayas, I became a monk, and I started studying meditation. It taught me, it gave me a greater appreciation and understanding for the present moment. I think the present moment is so underrated. There was a, a research paper that came out of Harvard just recently that said, on average, our minds are lost in thought almost 47% of the time. 47%. At the same time, this sort of constant mind-wandering is also a direct cause of unhappiness. Now, we're not here for that long anyway, but to spend almost half of our life lost in thought and potentially quite unhappy, I don't know, it's just, it kind of seems tragic, actually, especially when there's something we can do about it. When there's a positive, practical, achievable, scientifically proven technique which allows our mind to be more healthy, to be more mindful and less distracted. Now, what usually happens when we're learning to be mindful is that we get distracted by a thought. Let's say this is an anxious thought. So everything's going fine, and then we see the anxious thought, and it's like, oh, I didn't realize I was worried about that. You go back to it, repeat it. Oh, I am worried. Oh, I really am worried. Wow, there's so much anxiety. And before we know it, right, we're anxious about feeling anxious. You know, this is crazy. We do this all the time, even on an everyday kind of level. If you think about the last time, I don't know, you had a wobbly tooth. You know it's wobbly, and you know that it hurts. But what do you do every 20, 30 seconds? I don't know. I don't know. It does hurt. And we reinforce the storyline, right? And we just keep telling ourselves. And we do it all the time. And it's only in learning to watch the mind in this way that we can start to let go of those storylines and patterns of mind. But when you sit down and you watch the mind in this way, you might see many different patterns. You might find a mind that's really sort of restless and the whole time. You know, don't be surprised if you feel a bit agitated in your body when you sit down to do nothing and your mind feels like that. You might find a mind that's very sort of dull and boring and it's just almost mechanical. It just sort of seems it's as if you're just sort of getting up, going to work, eat, sleep, get up, up. Or it might just be that one little nagging thought that just goes round and round 
and round your mind. Whatever it is, meditation offers the opportunity, the potential to step back and to get a different perspective, to see that things aren't always as they appear. You know, we can't change every little thing that happens to us in life. But we can change the way that we experience it. Thank you very much. That's Andy Puttycomb. By the way, he co-founded a meditation app. It's called Headspace. And you can see his entire talk at TED.com. And that app, by the way, could be especially useful if you're as busy as Lakshmi Prattari. I go back and forth between the Bay Area and Bangalore. Lakshmi works in the Bay Area a lot, but she's still got family back in India, where she runs a big conference every year. How long is that flight? Uh, 24 hours. <laughs> right, okay. Give and take, give and take. <laughs> it would be better if it was faster, wouldn't it? I don't know. You know, sometimes I enjoy my quiet time on the plane for those 24 hours. I don't talk to anybody. Nobody can call me. I can't call anyone. It you know, sort of separates me from all the crazy rush, rush, rush stuff that we do all the time. Another way Lakshmi likes to slow down? By writing letters. As I write, I feel like there's an artwork happening on this piece of paper. Nobody else writes like that. Uh, it's nobody else's signature. It's only mine. Now, Lakshmi didn't always feel this way. Back when she was in college, her father would send her letters every week. Oh, yeah. You know, he would mail them regularly to me. I mean, I lived in America. My dad lived in India. And every week he wrote a letter to me. I mean, without fail. But I was in my busy life, working, etc. And I would see this letter and I go, okay, he wrote a letter. I'd just skim through it and put it away. and But never really read them. Yeah, uh, It was like, oh, okay, dad, he writes every week and uh, someday I'll catch up with it. Lakshmi did eventually catch up with all those letters from her father, but it wasn't until many years later, after he passed away. And that's when she came to really understand what they meant. Lakshmi explains more in her short TED Talk. My father left me a legacy of his handwriting through letters and a notebook. In the last two years of his life, when he was sick, he filled a notebook with his thoughts about me. He wrote about my strengths, weaknesses, and gentle suggestions for improvement. <laughs> quoting, quoting specific incidents and held a mirror to my life. After he died, I realized that no one writes to me anymore. Handwriting is a disappearing art. I'm all for email in thinking while typing, but why give up old habits for new? Why can't we have letter writing and email exchange in our lives? There are times when I want to trade all those years that I was too busy to sit with my dad and chat with him and trade all those years for one hug, but too late. That's when I take out his letters and I read them. And the paper that touched his hand is in mine and I feel connected to him. So maybe we all need to leave our children with a value legacy and not a financial one. A value for things with a personal touch, an autograph book, a soul searching letter. So what do I plan to leave for my son? My own notebook. Your talk is really kind of a parable for the lost art of writing by hand, right? Because we have to move so quickly, right? People send us emails and just expect to receive a response right away, very, very quickly. Right. And, and yet right. there's something lost about immediate responses. There's something mm -hmm. a lot that, that we lose when we don't have time to reflect on what, what it is we want to say and, and what meaning we want to give to the words that we commit to an email. Yes. And also there is something about just waiting you know, it's painful, but also there is something absolutely beautiful about not knowing when that letter is going to come and that excitement when you receive it. I think when you get things too easy, too quick, your expectations become more, you know, of course, I do think sometimes that I've been fed too much of 
Indian movie. So I have this sense of romance, this sense of waiting and longing, etc. But I just feel there's something magical about it to just wonder meanwhile, I wonder what that person is thinking. I wonder what's happening. Will I get this letter? And by writing, it's just to show that I have taken the time to write to you, which is uh, which is somehow very, very beautiful. Lakshmi Pratari, she's the CEO of Inc. Conferences. You can see her entire talk at TED.com. On the show today, ideas about slowing down and savoring the moment. It's kind of funny because I speak very fast and I think my mind is very fast. Uh, not in the sense that I'm very, you know, super smart, but that I move very quickly between topics a lot of the time. This is Gabriel Garcia Colombo. And he might not sound like he particularly appreciates slowness. But I make artwork to encourage people to slow down. Gabriel's artwork is mostly video. He makes these installations designed to get people to stop and think. And these video installations can take place over anywhere from, you know, a minute to a 25-minute loop. So you can't just pass by them? No. <laughs> well, you can, but I'm hoping that you don't. Gabriel says there's a problem with the way most of us view art. Not that we're not going to museums, but when we see art, we rush right by it. Or we end up seeing that art through our cell phone screens. I mean, I think we've all become collectors of media. And so when people visit a museum now, they see it just as another part of their collection. And you, you've got this device that you're just, you know, you're carrying around with you. It's sort of like a jar that you're collecting insects in. So how do you make the world slow down for art? Gabriel explains from the TED stage. Did you know that the human attention span is now only eight seconds? <laughs> eight seconds is important because eight seconds is also how people look at art in galleries. If you ever go to a museum these days, you'll notice something, that people walk up to a painting or a sculpture, and they'll take a picture with their iPhone and then walk away and take another picture of the next, the next painting. And to me, that's not a really good way of looking at art. Uh, I don't know if you agree with me or not, but as an artist, I'd rather have people spend time with artwork and slow down. My artwork is not your traditional paintings or sculptures. My artwork moves. And some of my artwork can take up to 20 minutes to see at once, or some of it, you never see the whole piece. One of Gabriel's installations that works like this is called Tube, and it's about our relationship with technology. And it features one of those old TVs you had in the 80s. And when you look at it, there's static on the screen. And every so often, a small figure climbs out of the screen made out of static and walks around on top of the television. Okay, so obviously people can't see this on the radio, but... Uh, in your talk, you show a video of this, and it's it's like a, a hologram projected on, on top of the, of the TV set? Yes. It's as if the character's, like, emerged from the screen itself and walks around, and then another character will appear. And these two characters walk around on top inside this little glass container on top of the TV. And when they touch each other, it shuts off the entire television screen and removes them from the from the world around them. So to really experience that piece, you've got to give it 20 minutes of your time. Yeah, to see the whole thing. You'd have to wait there for 20 minutes and really think about why these figures exist in the world. And, and also, how does this relate to the form of the actual television itself? And what am I saying about media? And so these are questions that I'm hoping people will start to ask when they spend that much time with the piece. That's really what you want, you want to happen. You want people to be forced to kind of think. Yeah, I want them to ask questions. You know, I think that I want them to think about how their life relates to the piece as well. In the past few years, Gabriel has taken his art out of the museum and into crowded, hectic places. Places where art is the last thing on people's minds. Like Fulton Center, a shopping mall and subway station in Manhattan that hundreds of thousands of people pass through every day. So Gabriel thought, what better place to get people to slow down? It came from this idea of walking around New York City streets and seeing these little interactive moments that you may miss. Everybody's missing all these great things that are happening, right? There's all these little plays that are happening around New York. So I came up with this idea of shooting these tiny little scenes of New Yorkers, these portraits of New Yorkers, in super slow motion. So I, sh I filmed over 50 people, and in this Fulton Center, there's going to be 50 different screens that are around the space that are showing advertisements, usually. But every 10 minutes, they're going to fade out, and they're going to show video art. So these takes are actually done over about two seconds. 
These are two-second takes that are stretched out to 30 seconds. So you're going to be surrounded by these slow-motion portraits. So what did it, it look like in the subway? It's 52 different screens. So it's, it's this very, very, and the, some of the screens are 30 feet tall, and some of them are uh, 18 feet wide, and some of them are just normal screens. But the idea is that at one mo moment, they'll all go to this piece at the exact same time, and you're sort of in this under, you know, it reminds me of being in an aquarium, but with, with people instead of fish. <laughs> so when, when you, if you just pass it by, it looks like a static image, but actually it's just a very slow-moving video. Yes, it's a very slow-moving portrait. We film at 1,000 frames per second. And what I love about it is that you can see things at that speed that you can't see in, in your normal life. Um, and it, what's great about that is that for you know, some of the dancers that we filmed, you can really see the way they move their bodies in a different way, or even just their expressions on people's face. I, I filmed these two um, older women <laughs> that were good friends, and they came uh, dressed in, in sort of their beach outfits. <laughs> and at one point, one just sprayed the other with a, a bottle of water. And the reaction to her being sprayed is just very authentic. <laughs> uh, and you can really see that, you know, the, the muscles in her face move and react to this, this scene in a way that you wouldn't even be able to notice it in real life. So have you ever stood in Fulton Station and just watched how people respond to it? Yeah, and that's that, that's the best thing that I, I got out of this piece was watching people sort of on their phone walking through the station. They look up for a second and then there's a giant tattooed girl dressed as the Statue of Liberty in front of them and she flicks her lighter and it turns on very slow motion. You see this flame burst on the screen and they stop and they look at it and they don't know what to think. And if that just breaks them out of their, their daily routine a little bit, that will make me happy as an artist. Yeah. Do you work slowly? Yes, definitely. For one of these artworks, in terms of a process, it takes me. It can take me up to like two years to, to develop. Just because of all the moving parts? Because of the moving, not even just because of the technology, but more because I want to get the idea right. And I'll do a drawing, you know, now, and then two years from now, I'll revisit that drawing and look at it and redo it again and, and think about what it means to me and write down, you know, a bunch of brainstorming sheets on that drawing. And, and then maybe it'll, it'll come out... Uh, three years after that sometimes. Um, but I like to have things percolating in the back of my mind. I find that I can reflect on things better when I have an idea that sits there for a while. It's like a, it's like a cheese. <laughs> you, by the way, you speak pretty fast for a slow guy. <laughs> well, I didn't say I'm not a nervous person. <laughs> I think it's just my mind works in these loops, and so I try to jump to the next loop really fast. And uh, sometimes that's why I have to stop myself and slow down and write some stuff down. You know, really looking at things in their, in their smaller form rather than trying to just find the next thing or to, or to answer the next email or to get that done. You know, maybe it's not all about completing a task. Maybe it's about admiring something for a little bit. Gabriel Barcia Colombo is an artist based in New York. You can find more of his TED Talks at TED.com. And by the way, his Fulton Center installation has since closed, but he plans to rotate it through other New York City subway stations soon. And to find out where you can see Gabriel's work, we have a link at our website, ted.npr.org. Take your time. I can wait. Hey, thanks for listening to our show on Slowing Down this week. If you want to find out more about who was on it, go to ted.npr.org. Our production staff at NPR includes Jeff Rogers, Brent Bachman, Megan Kane, Eva Grant, Sanaz Meshkinpour, and Casey Herman, with help from Rachel Faulkner and Daniel Shukin. Our partners at TED are Chris Anderson, Kelly Stetzel, and Janet Lee. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to Ideas Worth Spreading right here on the TED Radio Hour from NPR.